This is Jeff Drake from the Joneses. You're listening to The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcast presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaming as she brings you The Devil's Music. Hey there, this is Pleasant Gaming, and you're listening to The Devil's Music a Pantheon podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a punk rock witch from Hollywood, California. I've had a lifelong passion for rock and roll and the occult that started when I was a preteen. In the 70s, I was one of the first punks in LA. And as a teenager, I worked at the Whiskey A Go-Go, started producing shows and made a Xerox fanzine called Lobotomy, which led me to write for every major rock publication you could think of. In the 80s and the 90s, I fronted three bands. I'm a best-selling author with eight books out and more on the way. For the past 30 years, I've toured around the globe to teach and perform dance. You might have also seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. Look for me in the new Go-Go's documentary. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, go to my website, pleasantgaiman.com. I'm really excited to be part of the Pantheon Podcasts network of rock and roll shows. Everyone here at Pantheon tells stories about the music we just adore so much, each and every one with a different twist. Find them all wherever you listen to podcasts at Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. And head on over to PantheonPodcast.com to share a show with a friend. Or be damned to purgatory forever. This is Pleasant Gaiman, and welcome to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, my guest is the amazing Stacey Lane Wilson. She's a best-selling author, an award-winning filmmaker, and the hostess of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Stacey grew up in L.A. and was part of the early 80s Sunset Strip scene, but that's not a surprise because rock and roll is in her blood. She's also the daughter of guitarist Don Wilson of The Ventures and so much more. Hey, Stacey, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Pleasant. Thanks for having me on your show, which I love and listen to all the time. So I'm really excited to be here. 
<laughs> Side note to the audience, Stacy was afraid she wasn't going to be sick enough for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I probably, yeah, I know. I got to make up some really interesting stories, I guess. Now, I'm sure I'll draw one out of you or one or two or three or four. <laughs> but um, Stacy and I met when she was um, shooting the Ventures documentary because um, so um, this is still one of my favorite accomplishments. Um, I was a Ventures cover girl <laughs> and I grew up with those um, yes. Ventures albums. And when that happened, I just couldn't even believe it because for anyone who's listening, um, the Ventures covered the go-go surfing and spying. And um, in case you don't know that, and um Somehow, I probably through nepotism. No, um, I wound up on the on the cover, and that shoot was nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, you were on the cover because you're hot. you're hot. I love that that picture is so great. I love it too. Who took that photo? Now that um, was Teresa, right? Yes, that was Teresa Caricas. Um, yeah, she's she's like my main my main lady photographer over the years. <laughs> Um, but also, you know that um, the Kessel brothers, Dan and Dave Kessel, I don't know if you even know this, Stacey, those um, those guns on the cover uh, of it were real guns. Yeah. Yeah, because they were like... Oh, wow. Yeah, Dan and David Kessel were Phil Spector's bodyguards for a while. And I didn't... I Like they said, it's, you know, we wanted to look all spy-like. So I, I, I put on a... Um, that was my own trench coat and stuff. But... Um, they brought the guns in and I thought they were toy guns. And then they started like unloading all the magazines and showing them to me. And I was just like, whoa. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> wow. But um, so where should we start with you? Let's talk about your childhood and stuff too, because you grew up, you grew up fully in LA and I only grew up from adolescence in LA. So let's, let's, let's all I'll listen to your awesome LA rock and roll childhood. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, I was born um, in Los Angeles and my mom was uh, a model and a writer. And that's actually how my parents met. Um, I'm not quite sure if my mom, my mom is also a cover model. She was on um, Walk Don't Run volume two with her lime green go-go pants and her tight sweater and I'm not sure if that's how my parents met or if she got that cover because she was dating my dad but that's how that happened and so yes I was born in LA and my parents actually separated and divorced when I was still pretty young I think I was 18 months old or something like that so my mom raised me and it was pretty I, I guess I could say it was a checkered childhood, so to speak, because my mom was pretty wild. And uh, she actually ran away from home from uh, she lived in Ellensburg, Washington, when she was young. And she ran away from home when she was about 13 years old and went straight to Las Vegas, got a fake ID and got a job as a showgirl and a cocktail waitress. And she met the Rat Pack and hung out with all of them and then found her way to Hollywood. And she was in a few movies, a few, you know, like uh, Albert Zugsmith uh, did some movies. One was called uh, 
sex kittens go to college. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, so she knew um, some of the actresses that were in that, and she had little bit parts. And she also did a lot of modeling for pinup magazines. So she was on the cover of uh, magazines with titles like Swank and Wink and Gent and <laughs> stuff like that. So it's really, really cute cheesecake bottling them, you know, nothing too raunchy. But um, yeah, she was uh, an interesting role model to have as a little girl, I'll tell you. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> my, mo my mom was, um, she was, uh, she ran away from home and went to sing with big bands in the 40s. And then she wound up like on Broadway. And uh, then later, like when, by the time I was born, she was teaching musical theater at a college and stuff. But yeah, my mom's got some pretty good cheesecakey pictures, but they're, they're from like before your, your moms. But yeah, that's good. I'm glad we both had kind of wild moms. And then both turned yeah. wild. <laughs> well, you know, they say well-behaved women seldom make history. So <laughs> I got to keep those wild ladies coming. Yeah, so in those wild oats. So what part of LA did you live in when you um, when you were growing up? Um, actually, we moved around a lot. Um, my mom was always a step ahead of the landlord because <laughs> she was she was a writer. So as we know, writers don't make a lot of money. So it was kind of feast or famine. So whenever the uh, royalty checks ran out, we would run out on the rent. So I kind of lived in um, Sherman Oaks, you know, Chatsworth, the Valley. Uh, where else did we live? Yeah, basically the Valley and Hollywood for some uh, period of time. And then we actually, when I was about 12 years old, we moved up to Idlewild, which is um, a national forest in the San Bernardino Mountains. And um, I lived there for about three or four years. And then um, when I was 17, I left home and I lived in Woodland Hills. And that's really when I got closer with my dad. You know, I did see my dad from time to time when I was growing up. And I got to see a lot of really great concerts through my dad, including, of course, his own concerts, the ventures, and got to meet a lot of musicians and had a lot of fun, but he wasn't in my life um, permanently until I got older and was able to sort of be more autonomous and make that relationship deeper. And um, we got really close um, throughout my adulthood. And he just passed away in January. So oh, I miss him. sorry, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. He was the last venture standing. Um, so he was 88 years old and he actually started the band in 1959 with Bob Bogle and was a permanent member of the group all the way up until his retirement in 2015. And um, me and my half siblings got to go to that tour in Japan to see his last shows. Um, and then he's of course kept a hand in the group. He owned the name of you know the group and and managed that and did um, some recordings with them after 2015, but he essentially retired from touring, but he did tour for, you know, 60 years basically and never missed a show. Wow, that that's just incredible. And then right. when you when you were little, did you know that like your parents were, were famous or? Well, yeah, I knew, but it was just kind of part of my everyday life. So it yeah. didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. 
Yeah, no, I know. Like, yeah, it never, it never does. Like, I, I can't remember. I heard some crazy. Oh, uh, I read this somewhere. It was like one of Pamela Anderson's kids came home and said, "Mommy, at school they're telling me you're Pamela Anderson." <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No. I mean, well, and another thing about kids is you never think your parents are cool. So of course, you know, I thought, oh, my mom, it's a, you know a pinup model and I don't want my friends to see her pictures. And of course with um, the ventures, I, you know, was more of a rocker. So I loved uh, hard rock and heavy metal and stuff like that. So the ventures were like, eh, I didn't really get a real appreciation for them until I got older. And then of course, even more recently when I made the documentary Stars on Guitars, I learned a lot through the people that I interviewed, um, just how influential the ventures really were to so many different bands and musicians that I loved. So it it all kind of came full circle. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, even in like in punk rock, which one of my old boyfriends says that I always say that like is what I'm saying in the paleolithic era or <laughs> right but um during punk rock like a lot of us were like really really into like like especially the ventures and you know all those and link ray and just all those like really kind of guitar driven twangy surfy sounding bands you know because it didn't sound like the the absolute garbage, at least in my opinion, um, that was on the radio back then, you know, in the late 70s. Yeah. It wasn't like like Captain and Tennille or any of it. It was, it was like really cool music, you know, so. Yeah, it was, you know, um, surprisingly dangerous sounding music. You know, when you go back and listen to some of those early venture songs with the fuzz tone or you listen to a Dick Dale record, I mean, it, it really is uh, badass. Yeah, I got to meet Dick Dale one time. That was really cool. It was. It oh was, wow! It was at um. I was at an awards ceremony um for music, but I had just um I used to go to Disneyland all the time when I had more free time, and they they had just made the switchover from having no soundtrack to Dick Dale doing the soundtrack on on Space Mountain, and I was on acid, of course. <laughs> and it was the best it was the best thing I had ever heard and then I um I bumped into him like the next week at this awards ceremony because he somebody came up to me and I had no idea it was Dick Dale and said I was wearing like a midriff dress and whispered in my ear you look just like a belly dancer and he turned around and um and then I realized who it was. And I said, that's funny because I am a belly dancer. And he said, oh, I'm Lebanese. And he started telling me about like working at his dad's falafel stand and all this stuff. And so then we wound up, we were talking for like half an hour. And then I finally like walked away from him and everyone's like, we introduced me to Dick Dale. We introduced me to Dick Dale. And I was like, I don't know him. And they're like, what are you talking about? You guys are just talking like <laughs> friends. Wow. I know. Well, it sounds like he was friendlier with you than he was with some people. I, I, I don't know. I think I might have met him once backstage because the Ventures and Dick Dale did share a couple of bills, but I never really talked to him. But I heard he was not the friendliest person, so he must have really liked you. Well, I'm sure, like the big hair and the exposed stomach <laughs> didn't hurt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was. I, I thought he was really nice, but also, I, I'm, you know, I wasn't a musician. I was just being a sex pot at that moment <laughs> um anyway so um 
So tell tell everybody about the Ventures film. Is it is it on any of the services that they can see, or um, what's going on on with that? Um, yes, well, we had planned a big festival run for it, and of course, that was right when the pandemic 2020. hit. So we, yeah, it was it was a shame because we didn't get to see it on the big screen all that much. But it did play at uh, Viva Las Vegas a few months ago, and it played uh, in Gig Harbor, Washington, which is right near my dad's hometown of Tacoma, Washington, on the IMAX screen. So that's pretty exciting. But it did actually come out um, December of 2020, and it's all on pretty much all the streaming platforms. And, uh, you know, Prime, iTunes, Vimeo, YouTube, uh, Vudu, Tubi. So some of those you can even watch it for free with commercials. Um, and it's also on DVD. So it's um, been really well received and I'm really proud of it. Yes. And you, you've, made, you've made lots of movies and written lots, lots of books. You, you're, so, <laughs> yes. you're so multi-talented, including like film guides. So like horror movies, right? Right. Yeah. I actually got my start as a as a writer doing um, movie reviews and entertainment reporting for horror.com. Um, and then I went on to work for the sci-fi channel as a red carpet reporter and film reviewer. And I still do that to some extent, but now I'm really concentrating on my books. Um, you had mentioned my podcast, Rock and Roll Nightmares, which is a spinoff of my book series. And there are five books so far in the series, and um, I have several more planned. So it's really becoming a, a brand of its own. That's amazing. So it, are those mostly like about like, like, um, like deaths or rock and roll and crime, or is there also just like horrifying road stories? <laughs> well, it's kind of all of the above. I think with a name like rock and roll nightmares, I have a lot of leeway to do different things. Uh, the first three books in this series are short story collections um, that I've written and then also asked other writers to contribute stories to. So those first three um, are dark comedy and horror short stories all based in the rock world. So the first book is set in the 60s and it's called Along Comes Scary. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're goofy, fun books. Um, and then there's a second book in the 70s. And then there's another one set in the 80s. And then the uh, first nonfiction book in the series came out earlier this year, and it's uh, Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories, Volume 1. And that does cover um, the 27 Club and rock and roll suicides and plane crashes and bands beset by tragedy and all sorts of things. Of course, you know that people like Keith Moon and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Keith Richards and all kinds of people, D.B. Ramone, Chris Cornell, all these, Gigi Allen, of course, he's in there. <laughs> so there's a lot of wild characters in the book. And it's just all the true stories of their antics and lives and deaths. Yeah, I mean, definitely the 27 Club is so strange with them. If any of you guys in the audience don't know this, because I know some of you are youngins, there's there's a, a big spate of um rock stars that just all all happen to die at at the age of twenty-seven. So that that's a macabre 
club. <laughs> it is really eerie. Yeah, for sure. When you kind of string all these stories together and see the similarities that a lot of these people shared. And um, it is, it's really interesting to kind of delve into that and see how it became a phenomenon and who might have been the first member of the 27 club. And it kind of seems to be waning now a little bit. Wait, we was had... Robert Johnson in the 27 club? Yeah, yeah, he was murdered know. at the age of 27. Yeah, mm -hmm. he might have he, he, he might have been the pioneer then. He might have been. Might have been, yeah. yeah and <laughs> and of course, he's the one who uh, famously, uh, you know, has the legend of going to the crossroads to sell his soul to Satan for his incredible talent. So that's kind of like how maybe the whole thing got started, if you believe I, in that sort of thing. Totally. Well, I mean, where, where Robert Johnson is from, I mean, you know, like when I was, when I was down in Mississippi for a while, um, you know, during the summer, which was not pleasant, pun intended, <laughs> um, it was so humid. We were looking for the exact crossroads if we could find it, you know, but no one seemed to really know. But anyway, um, I love Robert Johnson, but let's yeah. Let's take a little break to listen to some music and then we will be right back. Stacy Lane, and we've been talking about rock and roll nightmares. Um, yeah, what about um, what about uh, for your rock and roll nightmares? Have you done a full punk rock edition yet? Not yet. I would do have some punk mixed in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, we do have uh, the Ramones in the first book, and like I mentioned, Gigi Allen, of course, is in there. Um, Sex Pistols, of course, Sid Vicious, he uh, factors in, in both books, I'm currently working on volume two of True Stories and go into the, I guess, supposition of whether or not, you know, he, his mother, Mercy killed him. I mean, there's all these crazy rumors and stuff, and I don't really draw any conclusions, but I try to present all the facts and different stories of what could have happened. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that's really cool that you're doing that, you know, because there hasn't really been kind of a collection of, of those kind of stories. I mean, everybody knows like one or two of them, you know, but, mm -hmm. uh, but that, yeah, there haven't, I mean, I kind of think of these, um, portions of the rock and roll nightmare series as sort of the Hollywood Babylon of rock. Totally. It's exactly yeah. like Hollywood Babylon. And then, um, is that when you're doing the the podcast, the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, which I actually haven't heard, that's available on all platforms, right? It is on all the platforms. So, you can even listen to your episode. It was one of our most popular ones. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so when you're doing that, like, um, have you interviewed people that, 
that are still alive that just had create, I mean, aside from me that had crazy stuff or is it just people talking about someone else's death or how, how does that go? Uh, it depends. I mean, because I'm still um, in the film journalism world, to some extent, I do get a lot of press releases about rock docs that are coming up. So um, I did interview Tracy Guns about um, in, in uh, uh, excuse me, a documentary that he's involved in about Randy Rhodes. So oh, he yeah. narrated that. So I had him on the show. And I had um, Nelson Bragg, who uh, drummed with Brian Wilson for many years, and he also has a book and a documentary out. So it's a mix of horror authors, um, rock and roll people, musicians, filmmakers. Um, so I try to just kind of mix it up, but anything that kind of falls into that uh, rock and roll nightmares territory is fair game for my podcast. Were you always into horror? Like, were you like, were you a really spooky, tiny girl? Like, I remember, <laughs> I want no, I wanted to. I myself started begging my mom to get me like um, all those old monster magazines. You know, like oh yeah, when I was like four, I was I was obsessed with that stuff. You know, I really wasn't when I was a little girl, I was really obsessed with horses and I had ponies and, you know, my mom got me my first pony when I was six. So I was really, really into horses. But around the age of about six, you know, when I got my first pony, I do remember that my dad um, let me stay up really late one night when I was visiting him to watch The Pit and the Pendulum starring Vincent Price. <laughs> and I just really got obsessed with those gothic horror films and I loved watching them and um so yeah and then I just started reading Stephen King novels and Anne Rice novels and stuff like that when I was younger and I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little girl I used to make my own little chapbooks and staple them together and they were different stories usually had horses in them um and then I started publishing a fanzine actually for um Led Zeppelin when I was about 15 and I had subscribers from all over the world so I've always been into the idea of writing and publishing and I've never really let that idea go um let's take a little break and we will come right back hi I am back with Stacey Lane Wilson. When was your fanzine going on? Like, when was that? Uh, that would have been like in the early 80s. So yeah, I had, I can't even know what was mine called. I think mine was called Presence. And my friend Peg Lafour, she had one called, uh, oh gosh, what was hers called? It wasn't tight, but loose, but that was another one that we subscribed to. So we used to um, interact with fans all over the world and swap newsletters and fanzines and stuff like that. And I had a huge in the mail, collection. right? In the mail. Yeah. It's no mail, one, mail. No one when you really have that. for your collection. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I still have some tour books. I have a 1969 hardcover Led Zeppelin tour book that I remember like I had to write to dozens of people all over the world to figure out who had one that they would sell to me. And I did chores, you know, my mom would always make me do chores to uh build up my work ethic so she, you know so I'd get paid to scrub the kitchen floor and put some money away so I could buy those Led Zeppelin collectibles oh yeah I mean I, <laughs> I was like I was like raking leaves and babysitting and doing shit yeah. like, to get my first tarot cards and you know <laughs> yeah I think that oh, I used to collect tarot cards too 
I used to have uh, decks from all over the world that the artwork is just so beautiful on those. Yeah, they're like tiny miniature works of art. Do you do you read tarot? I, I didn't know that. Or Oh, you know, when I was a kid, I dabbled with it. I was interested in it, but I always had to refer to my book to see what the cards meant. So I never got to be where I was an expert at it, but it was always really fun. That's, yeah, I love it. I've, I've had some wild readings lately. I mean, just, just wild ones in the past few days. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> that always, yeah, always... around Mercury retrograde which is huh yeah I, I have found that you know I used to write down what the readings were and then a lot of the predictions did come true so I'm not gonna knock it yeah I love it it's it's like it's just the well it's not the best thing ever it's but it's definitely one of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the artwork like you said is just amazing I remember I had a deck of um cat tarot cards from Italy and they were all hand drawn and they were from the 40s or 50s wow really beautiful cards yeah do you still have it uh I think I might have kept that one I did wind up selling my collection because I just downsized like crazy and I sold a bunch of the decks because I was never using them and I was like well they're all in a trunk you know someone should be enjoying these so I sold some of them but um I still have my first deck which is the um what is it called the writer, writer. writer. Yeah, yeah I have that one yeah, and then I think I did save the cat one because it was really so unusual. Will you leave it to me in your will? <laughs> I will. <laughs> yes. I know you love cats. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So when did you start like hanging out on Sunset Strip? Was that like in the hair metal days? Yeah, sadly, that was you know well all we had to do <laughs> had to go see is hair metal. I wasn't really on the punk scene. Um, cause I think that was just a little before my time, but I did order a fake ID from the back of cream magazine or something and, um, went, would go to the rainbow and stuff like that with my obviously fake ID always get let in. But yeah, I remember one of the, um, shows that I saw was pretty crazy. It was wasp at the troubadour on a Halloween night. And that was pretty wild. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Who was your favorite bands back then? Back then? Uh, gosh, well, you know, I was always more of an old soul. So I listened to a lot of The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that, even though I, you know, to go see live music, uh, I would see, yeah, let's see, I saw Wasp and I saw um, the earlier incarnations of Guns N' Roses. Um, who else did I see? Mm, I would just go to see a lot of local bands, actually. Uh, that always, I thought that was always pretty cool to just see unknown bands because you could always get closer to the stage and kind of follow them. So I just actually read that book that's out, Ain't Nothing But a Good Time, and it kind of goes over the hair metal days of L.A., and it, it they interview pretty much everyone from hey, who the wrote that back one? in the day. Who wrote that one? uh gosh you know I cannot remember the name of the authors now but it's actually not written it's more of an oral history so it's just a collection of quotes which is actually not my favorite style of to read but they really did get quotes from absolutely everyone who was anyone back then and they told the stories of how they 
they were so, um, you know, it's kind of like a DIY, not as much as the punk scene, but where they would really promote their bands with the flyers. Remember the flyers that would be all over the telephone poles on the Sunset Strip? Oh, totally. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they would have like a street team, basically, and they'd have, you know, groupies out there getting people to come to the shows because it was, uh, wasn't it like a pay or play thing, especially at Gazaris, where if you didn't bring in enough people to buy tickets, they, the band was responsible to pay for their time up on stage. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, that was that was that was kind of weird when pay when um pay to play came in. I remember like all of us were uh were just sort of outraged and because we yeah. were, we weren't paying to play, but just the concept of it. I mean, I can see it from like the club owner's perspective, but you know, like also because I booked so many clubs and was in a band and was writing about music. I just thought it was like so weird. It's like, well, then don't don't, don't book shitty bands, book bands, <laughs> right, rot, yeah. you know, because there was so many good local bands around, you know, mm-hmm. um, during during hair metal, me and um, the girls in my band, we used to um, when we were bored, like waiting to go on, or when we were in the van on long trips, we used to uh, we used to just go through the pages of of um, like some of the LA rock and roll magazines, you know, because nobody nobody had smartphones in those days. So when you were on a long van ride or like you know waiting, uh, yeah, you, you couldn't just be texting someone. But we used to play this game of like we would we would just open it up. And this was like at the height of hair metal where there was so many horrifying bands, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. And the fashions are, oh. Yes. Yes. But Even we were- back then though, we thought it was bad. It's not like you're looking back and thinking, oh man, what were we thinking? But I hated it even back then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, we, yeah, it was terrible back then, but we used to go like this. We used to go, yes, yes, no, yes, no, 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 no. And, and like, Sometimes bands we were playing with would go, what are you doing? And we're like, we're, we're talking about who we would fucking, who we would hypothetically fuck. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, gosh, the Aquanet stock must have gone up by a billion points back then. Oh, I know. Well, I mean, also, like, just in the 80s in general, like, everyone, even if they weren't hair metal, like, they just had so much hairspray on. Like, I always tell people that I'm responsible for, like, at least a 20-square-mile hole in the ozone layer. (laughs) 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 That's funny. Yeah, I mean, back then, like I said, I was always kind of, like, um, more into... 70s late 60s music even in the 80s and I never did the big hair I never did the you know lace fingerless gloves or anything like that so fortunately I can look back at all my pictures from then and look relatively normal (laughs) Normal. (laughs) my pictures don't look normal but thank god they don't look hair metal (laughs) (laughs) right um so tell everyone about your book though like um your I mean your your memoir about growing up in LA. Pardon? Tell 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 the audience, um the audience, our esteemed audience, uh, um about <laughs> your, your book about growing up in LA. Like yes, my memoir is called So LA. Uh, a Hollywood memoir and it's um it is about growing up in Los Angeles with my 
wild mom and my rockin' dad, but um, it's also a parallel history of uh, Los Angeles. So throughout, if I'm talking about, say, 1977, 78, when I was living in the Valley, um, I also talk about how the Hillside Stranglers were so active then and what it was like to be a young girl. You know, back then you couldn't even walk home by yourself without fear of the Hillside Strangler coming to get you. In fact, uh, one of my best friend's cousins was murdered by them. Um, so I kind of go into that and also some of the architecture when I talk about um, how my mom used to take me to Dupar's restaurant when I was a little girl on Sunday mornings for breakfast. Then I go into the architecture of Dupar's and who started um, the chain and other googie architecture and things like that. So it's kind of about me, but also entwined with Los Angeles and its history. And of course, being um, into horror, it also covers the darker history, you know, the serial killers and the crazy things that happened in LA as I was growing up. Yeah, there was so much craziness. Um, I, like I remember that the Hillside Strangler days, I think I might've talked about this on, on one of the podcasts, but I got, um, I got stopped like on, on Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard. I don't even remember now. Um, by the cops because I, I was I was probably on Quaaludes. I mean, I looked like I was fucked up, and I was wearing a leather jacket <laughs> and stuff. But um, that I was getting frisked by the female cop, and they found this giant but pink, the color of your hair, <laughs> switched. Uh -huh. And they were like, "Why do you have this? Why do you have this? Are you in a gang?" And I was like, "No, no, no." And they're like, "Well, why do you have this?" And they were getting really like crazy. And I just looked at them, and I was like, "The hillside strangler." And then. They both looked at each other and they said, okay, they just let me keep it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I mean, that was a different time. And it, for some, whatever reason, the 1970s really was the golden age, so to speak, of serial killers. And it was a really, I guess, a strange time to be a young girl growing up. I mean, you really, it was kind of psychologically uh, scarring in some ways, I guess, but also uh, it was a, a time of real independence, you know, I mean, I, children now, I feel like they're so um, tethered by technology, and we didn't have that, so that's something else that I talk about in the book, too, just what it was like to be a kid back in, what was it, the pale, Paleolithic <laughs> <Yeah>. era? <laughs> no, it was really free-range, like, kid and, and, yeah. and, and adolescence, like, mm -hmm. for a long time, you know, like, no one was like you walked to school on your own. No one was driving you to school because also there was like maybe more neighborhood schools. And then just like staying out like late after dark was normal. I mean, also, I remember like in, in, in my punk houses, like one of them was on on the first floor and it was it was not dumb to sleep with your windows open. Everyone in Hollywood was doing that. Like everyone in Silver Lake was that was just how. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, yeah. I think Richard Ramirez put a stop to that. I was just going to say, I know that that kind of ground <laughs> yeah. to a halt with mm -hmm. Richard Ramirez, but um, All right. yeah, you know, there was, there was so much crazy like Manson stuff going on here too. There was really like such a, um, such a wild, like, I, I think really at that time in the seventies in LA, there was like sort of more of a serial killer ratio than in other places I mean I know New York had right. Sam but that was like that was around the same time too but 
I don't think there was other ones in New York. I might be wrong. Uh, yeah, well, Seattle, that also had quite a few serial killers living there. But you mentioned the Manson family, and my mom actually um, was one of the many paramours of J.C. Bring. So she, um, you know, has an interesting story about that in her own book, which is called Legends and Lipstick, which... Um, I helped her get published um, before she passed away, but her memoirs are really interesting. And she talks a lot about what the vibe was like in Hollywood among the rich and glamorous after Sharon Tate and, um, you know, her friends were murdered and how people bought guard dogs and, you know, installed alarms. And it just really became a different vibe. It was the summer of love to the summer of death, basically. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, like that, that's, it, it was it was a huge change you know like just that. how could it not be but especially just like that whole like sort of um plague of serial killers was but I mean the, the Mansons were I don't know I, I you can't even tell who was like the the worst of that lot you know I'm still kind of oddly fascinated with all of that like I like, think yeah a lot of people are it's just so incomprehensible that you can't help but want to re-examine it over and over again. I do remember reading the book Helter Skelter when I was a little girl, even like at 12 or something. I, I read that, my mom's copy, and just found it so repugnant yet fascinating. And just to also to look into the psychology and the uh, prosecutorial side of it, the legal side of it, the courtroom, the transcripts, all that stuff really fascinates me. I know, and then all the girls coming, all the mountain girls going down to the courthouse and yeah, getting out there. Bizarre. Yeah, we used to um, we used to go up drinking um, in front of Cielo Drive before we'd go to the whiskey. I don't even know how that started, but it was because of because we were obsessed with the Manson family. Just yeah, like up. But yeah, you know, I was just gonna say it's it is definitely um to this day i know a lot of people are still making documentaries about it writing books about it um diane lake the youngest uh female member of the manson family released her memoir a couple of years ago and i read it and it was just really really interesting to see how the inner workings of the family uh sort of happened the politics within it and how she a young girl her parents just let her move in with the mansons <laughs> i was like what she uh, was like 14 i yeah, think she was 14 her... i think what's that what's that book called tell everyone oh gosh you know i can't remember the name of the book now i'll have to look on my phone but um yeah it's really good it's on amazon in fact i was just recommending it to someone the other day wow yeah that's um all of that stuff is just so wild i mean that was like you know, there was there was like lo the Laurel Canyon scene, and, and but then the the Topanga or more like what like North Valley scene was just so different of, of the yeah hippie stuff. Uh, so her book is called "Member of the Family: My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult, and the Darkness That Enveloped Us." So yeah. it's really good first person and, and it's interesting that she waited so long to write her book but she has a lot of interesting um perspective after all these years so that's definitely if you're into the Manson family that's a good book to read did she and get then, did she get into Jesus or anything like that I mean did she <laughs> I don't think she did no 
Okay, I mean, I was just wondering because that that just seems like something that might happen, you know? Yeah, no, she didn't go from one cult to another. So I guess she, I don't really know what, I don't remember what she's doing now because I read it like when it first came out a couple of years ago, but it's a good one. Yeah, that's that sounds really good. Are you working on any like new film projects or... Um, actually, I just had a film come out in February called The Second Age of Aquarius, and it's, uh, it's a narrative film. So it's about a rock star who died in 1970, and his spirit goes into the electricity, and he comes back in modern times. So I kind of call it, uh, he comes back through a computer programmer. So it's kind of like weird science meets get him to the Greek, <laughs> you know, he's, he's a hippie from the sixties, but he's sort of brought back to our modern time through this computer programmer. Who's a big fan of his. So little odd couple in there too. Is it a and girl? Is it a girl computer program? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. She's a fan of his Russell Aquarius was his name. And, um, he comes back, but he can only stay within her apartment. So it's kind of like, that's why I say it's like the odd couple or my favorite Martian kind of vibes where he's kind of stuck in the apartment. And um, she's a fan of his, but he's kind of this Jim Morrison type where he's this mystical 60s rock star. And he thinks that women are just there to fulfill his every need. And she finds out, you know, oh man, he's kind of chauvinistic and he's not really the rock and roll poet that I thought he was. But it's all it's all comedy. It's it's uh, it's a fun movie. And I co-wrote it with Darren Smith, who is a writer and composer. Um, he did a rock and roll sci-fi horror movie called Repo, the Genetic Opera, uh, several years back. So he's a really talented songwriter. So he wrote um, a whole bunch of songs for Russell Aquarius and their 60s period correct. So we have a soundtrack that goes with the movie too. And um, it's a lot of fun and it's streaming everywhere too. It's on Prime and iTunes and everywhere that you get your movies. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's a fun. Yeah, it actually was based on a short story that Darren and I wrote. And um, he's just really got this kooky, uh, crazy mind. And it's really fun to kind of follow his lead when we're writing together, because we have collaborated on quite a few um, books and stories together and films. That's very cool. Foxes with twin beauties, triple entendre, blue movie, menage à trois, avec foie gras, chic au pairs, got devil there he is, truck your lucky monkey down a coal hole, Susie, Patrick honky donkey, blue movie, camera frames, shaggy mates. And so, um, what kind of stuff do you have? that's coming up or not all the way finished yet. Do you want to give any like kind of tasters of that? Yeah, well, I'm still um, working on Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories, Volume 2. So um, I'm about halfway through that book. And the chapter that I was working on today was about um, fire. So it's pyrotechnics gone wrong and 
uh, rock stars who've died in fires, like Steve Marriott from The Small Faces and Humble Pie. Sadly, he burned himself up in a fire. He died in a fire? I didn't even know he that. Did. Yes, he fell asleep with a cigarette, um, which is really sad. But um, there's also some fun stories in there about pyrotechnics gone wrong. And, <laughs> you know, of course, we have... Michael Jackson's hair catching on fire, um, Ozzy Osbourne, you know, doing some crazy things with pyrotechnics. Um, there was also, of course, Gene Simmons. He's caught his hair on fire quite a few times. So there's some stories yeah, like I'm that. Yeah, I'm sure he has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the more tragic ones, like the um, Station Nightclub Fire, where Bray Gray White was playing. And yeah, that's a really terrible story. But, um, you know, so it's just kind of a mix of all different sorts. And even uh, the fire chapter goes into musicians who were spectacularly fired from their bands. And so it it's <laughs> kind of goes into all different directions. But um, that book is about halfway done. And then I'm also working on... Um, a cocktail book. Uh, so it's called Rocktails and it's um, different mixed drinks and wine spritzers and even mocktails inspired by music and lyrics and rock stars. And um, I'd love to have you contribute. I, 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 I started writing it the other night. I'll, I'll tell ah, you, nice. I'll tell everyone what it is. I'm, I'm yeah. gold dust woman. Uh, okay. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say what the cocktail is, but you can't allow anyone else to do gold dust woman now. I will not. I'm I'm wondering <laughs> if there's any gold schlager involved in that. <laughs> I was I was thinking about doing a thing with gold schlager, but it's something else. Okay, all right. I'm excited. Because I, I, I love the way gold schlager looks, but like I kind of feel like you can't drink it unless you're already drunk, sort of. <laughs> right. Or unless you sip it very, very slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that'll be fun. That's coming out in time for the holidays for your cocktail parties. So that will be out. And then I have about um geez, I you know, I just keep up coming up with ideas for the rock and roll nightmares book series. Um Another one that's going to be coming out next year is called uh, Love Stinks, <laughs> which is the Jay Giles band uh, song title, but it's about relationships gone wrong in rock and roll. So that's probably going to be a rather thick book. Oh, my God. Yes, that's going to be a giant book. Like, like <laughs> who, like who um, can you say one or two? Um, well, I'm probably going to, I haven't actually started writing it yet, but there are quite a few, of course. I mean, there's, well, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee, speaking of Pamela, which we talked about earlier, um, the fact that they were married and divorced and then got married again, and there's a lot of drama there. But um, if you go back over, like even just the Rolling Stones, uh, there's like how many children between them? They each have like, you know, 30 or 40 kids from all their different marriages, and some of them even married children. So <laughs> there's that. Yeah, I know that that's going to be a really thick book. That's going to be like yes. Encyclopedia Britannica. No, yeah, no kidding. But it'll be fun. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> I can't wait to read that one. <laughs> um. So anyway, what do you what do you um? Are you doing? Do you have any more movie plans? Uh, I do. I did actually regain control of a movie of mine that was shot a few years ago. Um, I was just a hired hand, but the producers got into some kind of a legal 
TIFF and, you know, the movie was kind of in limbo for a couple of years, but um, the producer that won the film decided that he wanted to be out of the film business. So he gave me the movie. So that's currently being edited by the brilliant editor who did my ventures documentary, Nina Hurton. And um, so she's going to put that together for me. And it's, um, I kind of call it, uh, you know, the elevator pitch would be panic room meets tourist trap. So it's about a home invasion and sentient mannequins come to uh, fuck with the people that broke into the house. That is fucked up. Oh my God. That, <laughs> that Twilight Zone up. episode where all the dummies came to life on the 13th floor. Do you remember? I love it. Yes. That's one of my favorites. So yeah, mannequins have always been sort of a source of fascination for me. So I was really um, excited when I got to make a movie that kind of took advantage of that. And the mannequins are quite creepy. So I'm excited for that one to are come they, out. Are they, do you use real mannequins in it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Okay. So when I was little, I used to, I used to, I used to go like when we were at a department store, I would go and just like pose and hold still as long as I could in front of them. <laughs> really <And well>. Thinking <laughs> that people would think that I was like really a, a mannequin. <laughs> uh, if only I'd known that I would have had you as a stand-in at least. <laughs> a stand-in for a mannequin. <laughs> Yeah, well, these mannequins, they're vintage, so they have that sort of creepy otherworldly look. So it'll be really fun when that one comes out, but that won't be till next year. That's and it's really called Night of the Mannequins. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. That's that's so scary. Remember also <laughs> on that Twilight Zone that um, all that mannequin shit was taking place on the 13th floor. And then at the end of the episode, um, the guy that was witnessing it was told there was only 12 floors in that building. Oh, that was fantastic. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, there's also Maniac. I don't know if you saw that film uh, from 19, yeah. I think it's 80 or 81 about mannequins. You know, this guy, a creepy guy that kills women and then he uses their scalps to decorate his mannequins. And so there's a, a long history of menacing mannequin movies. So I'm proud to be a part of the tradition. Are you going to have show showroom dummies by Kraftwerk anywhere in this? <laughs> I should. Yeah, totally. That's also it's such a, it's a creepy song, especially if there's like weird murdering mannequins around. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, well, this has been really fun. Is there anything that you want to add? Uh, no. I feel like you covered everything, and I'm really happy to be able to uh, chat with you. It's been a while since we've talked. I know. It's that pre-pandemic since we talked, except for you. I know. It has been a while, but um, yes, that's about it. Rock and Roll Nightmares, uh, Night of the Mannequins, and uh, that's what I've got going on. So if anyone wants to check those out, those are out and about. And uh, the Ventures documentary which uh, features Pleasant is on streaming just about everywhere. So got to check that out too. Yeah, you guys, that was, that was Stacey Lane Wilson. She's so great. She's got so many good, good things going on. Um, I, I just love everything you're doing, Stacey. Ah, uh, thank you. Anyway, this, this has been a devil's music production and um, I will, I will, I will not see you, but you will hear me the next time around. Bye, everybody. Bye.
The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks.